Chapter 3 of The End of the Tether by Joseph Conrad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Chapter 3 The End of the Tether. Just at that time, the Japanese were casting far and wide for ships of European build, and he had no difficulty in finding a purchaser, a speculator who drove a hard bargain but paid cash down for the fare made with a view to a profitable resale. Thus it came about that Captain Wally found himself on a certain afternoon descending the steps of one of the most important post offices of the East with a slip of bluish paper in his hand. This was the receipt of a registered letter enclosing a draft for £200 and addressed to Melbourne. Captain Wally pushed the paper into his waistcoat pocket, took his stick from under his arm and walked down the street. It was a recently opened and untidy thoroughfare with rudimentary sidewalks and a soft layer of dust cushioning the whole width of the road. One end touched the slummy street of Chinese shops near the harbour, the other drove straight on without houses for a couple of miles through patches of jungle-like vegetation to the yard gates of the new Consolidated Docks Company. The crude frontages of the new government buildings alternated with the blank fencing of vacant plots, and the view of the sky seemed to give an added spaciousness to the broad vista. It was empty and shunned by natives after business hours, as though they had expected to see one of the tigers from the neighbourhood of the new waterworks on the hill coming at a loping canter down the middle to get a Chinese shopkeeper for supper. Captain Wally was not dwarfed by the solitude of the grandly planned street. He had too fine a presence for that. He was only a lonely figure, walking purposefully, with a great white beard like a pilgrim and with a thick stick that resembled a weapon. On one side, the new courts of justice had a low and unadorned portico of squat columns half concealed by a few old trees left in the approach. On the other, the pavilion wings of the new colonial treasury came out to the line of the street. But Captain Wally, who had now no ship and no home, remembered in passing that on that very site when he first came out from England there had stood a fishing village, a few mat huts erected on piles between a muddy tidal creek and a miry pathway that went writhing into a tangled wilderness without any docks or waterworks. No ship no home. And his poor Ivy away there had no home either. A boarding house is no sort of home, though it may get you a living. His feelings were horribly rasped by the idea of the boarding house. In his rank of life, he had that truly aristocratic temperament characterised by a scorn of vulgar gentility and by prejudiced views as to the derogatory nature of certain occupations. For his own part, he had always preferred sailing merchant ships, which is a straightforward occupation, to buying and selling merchandise, of which the essence is to get the better of somebody in a bargain, an undignified trial of wits at best. His father had been Colonel Wally, retired, of the HEI Company's service, with very slender means beside his pension, but with distinguished connections. He could remember as a boy how frequently waiters at the inns, country tradesmen and small people of that sort, used to my lord the old warrior on the strength of his appearance. Captain Wally himself, he would have entered the navy if his father had not died before he was fourteen, had something of a grand air which would have suited an old and glorious admiral, 
but he became lost like a straw in the eddy of a brook among the swarm of brown and yellow humanity filling a thoroughfare that by contrast with the vast and empty avenue he had left seemed as narrow as a lane and absolutely riotous with life. The walls of the houses were blue, the shops of the Chinamen yawned like cavernous lairs, heaps of nondescript merchandise overflowed the gloom of the long range of arcades, and the fiery serenity of sunset took the middle of the street from end to end with a glow like the reflection of a fire. It fell on the bright colours and the dark faces of the barefooted crowd, on the pallid yellow backs of the half-naked jostling coolies, on the accoutrements of a tall Sikh trooper with a parted beard and fierce moustaches on sentry before the gate of the police compound. Looming very big above the heads in a red haze of dust, the tightly packed car of the cable tramway navigated cautiously up the human stream, with the incessant blare of its horn in the manner of a steamer groping in a fog. Captain Wally emerged like a diver on the other side, and in the desert shade between the walls of closed warehouses removed his hat to cool his brow. A certain disrepute attached to the calling of a landlady of a boarding-house. These women were said to be rapacious, unscrupulous, untruthful, and though he contemned no class of his fellow-creatures, God forbid, these were suspicions to which it was unseemly that a wally should lay herself open. He had not expostulated with her, however. He was confident she shared his feelings. He was sorry for her. He trusted her judgment. He considered it a merciful dispensation that he could help her once more. But in his aristocratic heart of hearts he would have found it more easy to reconcile himself to the idea of her turning seamstress. Vaguely he remembered reading years ago a touching piece called The Song of the Shirt. It was all very well making songs about poor women. The granddaughter of Colonel Wally, the landlady of a boarding-house. Pooh! He replaced his hat, dived into two pockets, and, stopping a moment to apply a flaring match to the end of a cheap cheroot, blew an embittered cloud of smoke at a world that could hold such surprises. Of one thing he was certain, that she was the own child of a clever mother. Now he had got over the wrench of parting with his ship, he perceived clearly that such a step had been unavoidable. Perhaps he had been growing aware of it all along with an unconfessed knowledge. But she, far away there, must have had an intuitive perception of it, with the pluck to face that truth and the courage to speak out, all the qualities which had made her mother a woman of such excellent counsel. It would have had to come to that in the end. It was fortunate she had forced his hand. In another year or two it would have been an utterly barren sail, to keep the ship going, he had been involving himself deeper every year. He was defenceless before the insidious work of adversity, to whose more open assaults he could present a firm front, like a cliff that stands unmoved, the open battering of the sea, with a lofty ignorance of the treacherous backwash undermining its base. As it was, every liability satisfied, her request answered, and owing no man a penny, there remained to him from the proceeds a sum of five hundred pounds put away safely. In addition, he had upon his person some forty-odd dollars, enough to pay his hotel bill, providing he did not linger too long in the modest bedroom where he had taken refuge. Scantily furnished and with a waxed floor, it opened into one of the side verandas. 
The straggling building of bricks as airy as a bird cage resounded with the incessant flapping of rattan screens worried by the wind between the whitewashed square pillars of the seafront. The rooms were lofty. A ripple of sunshine flowed over the ceilings, and the periodical invasions of tourists from some passenger steamer in the harbour flitted through the windswept dusk of the apartments with the tumult of their unfamiliar voices and impermanent presences, like relays of migratory shades condemned to speed headlong round the earth without leaving a trace. The babble of their eruptions ebbed out as suddenly as it had arisen, the draughty corridors and the long chairs of the veranda knew their sightseeing hurry or their prostrate response no more, and Captain Wally, substantial and dignified, left well-nigh alone in the vast hotel by each light-hearted scurry, felt more and more like a stranded tourist with no aim in view, like a forlorn traveller without a home. In the solitude of his room he smoked thoughtfully, gazing at the two sea-chests which held all that he could call his own in this world. A thick roll of charts in a sheath of sailcloth leaned in a corner. The flat packing-case containing the portrait in oils and the three carbon photographs had been pushed under the bed. He was tired of discussing terms, of assisting at surveys, of all the routine of the business. What to the other parties was merely the sale of a ship was to him a momentous event involving a radically new view of existence. He knew that after this ship there would be no other, and the hopes of his youth, the exercise of his abilities, every feeling and achievement of his manhood had been indissolubly connected with ships. He had served ships, he had owned ships, and even the years of his actual retirement from the sea had been made bearable by the idea that he had only to stretch out his handful of money to get a ship. He had been at liberty to feel as though he were the owner of all the ships in the world. The selling of this one was weary work, but when she passed from him at last, when he signed the last receipt, it was as though all the ships had gone out of the world together, leaving him on the shore of inaccessible oceans with seven hundred pounds in his hands. Striding firmly, without haste, along the quay, Captain Wally averted his glances from the familiar roadstead. Two generations of seamen, born since his first day at sea, stood between him and all these ships at the anchorage. His own was sold, and he had been asking himself, what next? From the feeling of loneliness, of inward emptiness, and of loss, too, as if his very soul had been taken out of him forcibly, there had sprung at first a desire to start right off and join his daughter. Here are the last pence, he would say to her. Take them, my dear, and here's your old father. You must take him, too. His soul recoiled, as if afraid of what lay hidden at the bottom of this impulse. Give up? Never. When one is thoroughly weary, all sorts of nonsense come into one's head. A pretty gift it would have been for a poor woman this seven hundred pounds with the encumbrance of a hale old fellow more than likely to last for years and years to come. Was he not as fit to die in harness as any of the youngsters in charge of these anchored ships out yonder? He was as solid now as ever he had been. But as to who would give him work to do, that was another matter. Were he, with his appearance and antecedents, to go about looking for a junior's birth, people, he was afraid, would not take him seriously. 
or else, if he succeeded in impressing them, he would maybe obtain their pity, which would be like stripping yourself naked to be kicked. He was not anxious to give himself away for less than nothing. He had no use for anybody's pity. On the other hand, a command, the only thing he could try for with due regard for common decency, was not likely to be lying in wait for him at the corner of the next street. Commands don't go a-begging nowadays. Ever since he had come ashore to carry out the business of the sale, he had kept his ears open, but had heard no hint of one being vacant in the port. And even if there had been one, his successful past itself stood in his way. He had been his own employer too long. The only credential he could produce was the testimony of his whole life. What better recommendation could anyone require? But vaguely, he felt that the unique document would be looked upon as an archaic curiosity of the eastern waters, a screed traced in obsolete words, in a half-forgotten language. End of chapter 3